If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. So 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's God's word. Well, last week we celebrated Independence Day, right? July 4th. And in church last week, we celebrated our own form of independence, right? We celebrated God's declaration of our independence, right? That because of Jesus, we are cleansed, freed, and now we live independent of sin. Well, our country's declaration of independence was this statement declaring that everything was changing. It declared that we were now free from the tyranny that had become the British rule. But our founders realized that simply saying you're free is not enough. Just to set people free is not enough. Our founders realized that freedom is wonderful, but the best freedom has direction. The best freedom has direction. Direction to live life with meaning and with purpose. And we all want freedom, right? We want freedom from slavery. We want freedom from the things that bind us. We want freedom from our addictions, from from the ruts that we get in. But what we really want is freedom so that we all can do our part to make our country and the world even the way that we want it, right? We have this vision of what life could be like. And the purpose of freedom is so that we can be a part of that coming about. Now, our country's founders have had a document that they wrote for just this purpose, right? It was the Constitution. The Constitution. This laid out the plan so that the people of the United States could use their freedom to experience what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That was the design of the Constitution. The Constitution was designed. This is what the preamble says. It says it was designed to establish justice, ensure peace, provide for defense, and promote the general welfare. Okay, this is what the Constitution was for. Now, God also has a Constitution for his people, right? We also have, it's a document that's designed for the exact same purpose. God's Constitution is designed so that God's people will know what to do with their freedom. So his people will know, people who've experienced salvation in Jesus, so that they'll know who they are as God's people. And so that they'll know what kind of people what it means to live in relationship with God and what God expects us to be and to do as his people in the world. I mean, again, that's the purpose of the Constitution. It's to bring justice on earth. It's to establish peace 
in the family and outside, and a spiritual welfare and thriving that is available to everyone. It's amazing, right? It's the same thing. God's constitution lets people pursue life, a heavenly life, where you can begin to experience a heavenly life today. Right now, you can experience in a, in a small foretaste kind of way what life will be like forever and ever with God. So there's life. There's also liberty. There's real freedom. You have real freedom when you believe in Jesus from being controlled by the past, from being controlled by addictions and bad habits. And then this unshakable happiness comes upon us as God's people when we experience salvation. And that happiness can last in all circumstances. God's constitution is the Bible. This is the constitution that God has written that is now our constitution. This book is our guiding light. It's the document that teaches us who we are as freed, independent people. People have been set free from sin, and it teaches us what we are to be and who we we are to be and what we're to do in this world. Now, in Sunday worship, we've been going through a series talking about what we do on Sunday mornings in worship. In this Sunday worship, God wants us to emphasize the Constitution. Okay, it's the third step. If you see in the bulletin, the five stages of what it means to worship God, covenant renewal worship, part of this is that we get the Constitution out and we look at it, right? Every single week as part of our worship, God wants us to bring out the book, look at it. He wants us to read it, to understand it, to experience it, and then to apply it in our lives, And so God speaks to us in lots of ways, but specifically as we read from our Constitution and hear it preached every week. And so we're going to see how this Constitution shapes us and brings healing to us and strength to us in our lives. We're going to see this uh, from our passage in three main ways. So if you want to take notes, here's the outline. We're going to see first what the Bible is, second, what the Bible does, and then third, why the Bible is necessary. Okay, so what it is, what it does, and why it's necessary. First, what the Bible is. We've already said the Bible is our constitution. The reason that the Bible is our constitution is because the Bible is God's authority. Okay, this is the authority of God. There are verses in this passage that if you really think and understand them, they will blow your mind. Okay, what do I mean? Well, verse, look, at, look at verse 16 in chapter 3. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is breathed out by God. If you talk, um, if you were to say something and you put your hand right here, do you know what you feel? You feel your breath, right? You cannot talk without using your breath. When you speak, I'm doing it right now, I can feel my breath hitting every word that I say enunciates. I can feel the aspiration of my breath coming with every word that I say. The Bible is breathed out by God. Do you understand the image there? The Bible is the breath of God. When God speaks, the physical manifestation of God speaking are the words of the Bible. You try this. When you whisper, does it happen? Yeah, it happens when you whisper too. When you whisper, it still works. You can't speak without your breath coming out. And so the Bible is literally the breath of God. It is the word of God. People talk about the Bible being inspired by God. This is one of the verses that teaches us that. This is not just a book written by people. 
This is not just people who wanted to try to make something happen and so they wrote these things out. This isn't an opiate of the masses. This is literally God himself speaking. It's the breath of God. It doesn't mean, when we say that the Bible is inspired, it doesn't mean that the people who wrote it were inspired to come up with some great thoughts. It means that the words themselves were the breath of God. And so because of that, it is his authority. It is his, it is, the Bible is the authority of God let loose in the world. If you let the Bible speak, man, things happen. Things happen. In chapter 4, verse 1 even, it shows the authority here. Paul is solemnly charging Timothy. Paul is solemnly charging Timothy as a pastor to preach the word in verse 2. But what he says in verse 1, he shows that he charges him. Look at that. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So what we see here is that the word represents God. It represents the authority of Jesus. So much so that when Paul tells Timothy to preach, he's saying, you represent the one who is God. You represent Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, the one who is coming and the one whose kingdom has begun on earth. There's an interesting verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. In the English, this is one of the places where sometimes the English doesn't quite bring out the meaning of the original, but it says this. It says, how can anybody call on Jesus when they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless somebody preaches? And so there we see that, again, that people need to hear preaching so that they can hear about Jesus. People need to hear the word shared. What's interesting, though, is that Romans 10, 14 can also be translated... How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? Okay, let me repeat that so you can wrap your mind around it. It's not, how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? It's, how can they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? The implication there is, if you read Romans 10, 14... What it's saying is that when God's word is preached, Jesus is speaking. You're hearing Jesus speak in the preaching of the word. Okay, now we obviously have to be careful, right? I am not inspired in the way that the Bible writers were inspired. No human preacher is today. And so we would put a little qualifier on there and say, as far as this sermon is accurately preaching the Bible, then Jesus is speaking to you. But Romans 10.14 says that there's something powerful that goes on in the preaching of the word. And that is that Jesus is heard. You're not just hearing about him. You are hearing him speak. So if that is what the Bible is, if the, if the Bible is the word of God, the authority of Jesus, then if the sermon is the main part of our constitution phase in worship, what should preaching be on Sundays? Right, think about that. What should characterize a sermon? We get up here, I mean, have you ever thought about that? What, is a, what makes a good sermon? What makes a bad sermon? What makes a biblical sermon? What makes a sermon that accurately af- reflects Jesus' authority? Right? Let's talk about that for a second. I think there's really three things that make up what a sermon ought to be. First, sermons ought to be God's word. They should be preaching God's word. That's chapter 4, verse 2. That's what Paul says. He says, preach the word. 
Preach the word. What word? Well, preach the word of God. Sermons need to not be about the preacher's ideas. It's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's about what God thinks. It's about what he says, because that's the authority of the church. This is the constitution of the church. And so this is what needs to be brought out, read, and explained. Okay, so sermons need to be about the Bible. We've got to be careful that we're not spending too much time, you know, talking around the Bible, but, but actually explaining the Bible. Now, I'm going to do my best to explain it, to interpret it, to apply it, to illustrate it, to make it. But everything that I do, <laughs> whether it's give you a story or lay down on the floor, right, Everything that I do needs to have the impact that you better understand the Constitution. And so good preaching, biblical preaching, is preaching of God's Word. Now, that can take different forms. Okay, Sometimes it's confrontative, right? Sometimes God's Word gets into our kitchen and it tells us things that we're not comfortable hearing. We have to recognize that. Okay, if God speaks, he knows better. We need, to, we need to recognize that we all have weaknesses. We all have areas of our life that we're not excited about, not proud of, or sometimes we don't even know about. And there are times when God's word will confront us where we are, make us feel uncomfortable, make us wish we could do the confession of sin time over again, right? Other times, it's, it's like wisdom. You know, other times, sermons, preaching of the word can be almost like sitting down with your grandfather or your father, your mother, your grandmother, and listening to wisdom roll off their tongue, just explaining how life works. You know, God's perspective on the way life is and how you can operate within it. You know, other times it's emotional. You know, like I think about the Psalms that have the range of emotions. You know, and so there are times when your experience in a sermon is going to get emotional or where the sermon will appeal to your emotions. And so, but no matter what it is or what style it takes, sermons need to be preaching the word. Okay, they need to be based on scripture. All right, second thing is that sermons should teach you both the goal and the guide to gospel life. Okay, the goal and the guide to gospel life. Because that's really what the Constitution is. The Constitution lines out, this is how you can experience life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so sermons ought to tell you not just what the rules are. It shouldn't just tell you what God expects or what God invites you to live in, but it should also tell you how you can actually do it. It should remind us continually not just what our obedience ought to look like, but it should tell us how we can obey. Where does our strength come from to obey? How can we close the gap between what we want to be and what we are? So it should teach us the goal and the guide to holiness. And then the third thing is, and this should hopefully, I mean, this just flows right out of that second thing. Sermon should focus us on our union with Jesus. It's got to focus us on him. It's got to be about Jesus. If a sermon is not about Jesus, we've got to be really, really careful. If a sermon doesn't bring us to Jesus in some way, then we need to be careful because he's the king. He's the king. He wrote the book. And not only did he write the book, but he lived the gospel life. And so he's our king and our savior. And as we talked about last week, we need Jesus both on us and in us. What does that mean? Well, we need him on us to cover us with his death and his resurrection so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be accepted in God's sight. We need him on us, covering us with his perfection so that when God sees us, our sins are washed away and we stand forgiven in his sight. 
We need him on us. And preaching needs to constantly remind us that we don't earn our salvation, that all the good works that we want to do, the whole gospel life flows from our salvation. It doesn't earn our salvation. This is why constitution comes after cleansing. This is why we confess our sins before we come to God's word, because God wants us to know that we don't earn our salvation by being obedient to the sermon. Does that make sense? I mean, it's super important because all of us, we forget this and we think, you know what? If I do these things, God will be more happy with me. If I do these things, then I can earn my way to heaven. And the whole structure of our service, the whole structure of God's covenant is, no, 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 it goes the other way around. And so we need Christ on us, on us for forgiveness. But then we also need Jesus in us, right? If we're going to grow, if we're going to change, if we want to be healed, if we want to be set free from the things that bind us. We need Jesus and his power in us. Okay, frankly, we just can't love people well enough on our own. Selfishness crowds in, we get mad, we get angry, we react. I mean, you experience that. We need Jesus's love in us because our love is not enough. We need Jesus's patience in us because it's not ours is not enough. When he is in us, our old self, what happens to our old self? It dies. It dies and we're raised with him and we become this new creature in him. His Jesus' own spirit fills us and makes us new. So that's what the Bible is. It's God's authority in our lives and the sermons and how they ought to reflect that authority. Our second point is what the Bible does. What the Bible does. If you get really, really nitpicky with this passage, there's 10 different things that Paul says the Bible does in our lives. I'm not going to give you a list of 10 things. I'm going to group them together somewhat and point out the highlights here. But it's amazing. Like if you see, this is what, this is a passage all about what the Bible can do in your life. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. It says there that the Bible can make you wise unto salvation. You know, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the Bible can make you wise for salvation. If you want to know how to be saved, if you want to know what it means to be saved, if you want to know what it means to walk with God and have a relationship with him, the Bible is for that. The Bible directs you to have faith in Jesus, to trust in him, because all of us fall short. All of us have sin in our lives, and all of us need to be forgiven. God has provided a way of forgiveness, and that's through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you trust in him, when you say, God, I have lived my life apart from you, and I'm realizing now that I, that's not a good thing. And so I'm sorry. I've been living apart from you. I've been ignoring you. And I really would like to come back. Will you please forgive me? And God, I'm going to trust in the death of Jesus that you sent him to be the sacrifice for my sin. If you pray that prayer, that's what it means to become saved. That's all it takes. You are saved. You have a relationship with God. And the Bible continues to make you wise. It's kind of interesting. Um, a few days ago, um, we were sitting in a restaurant and Amanda says, you know, Daddy, it seems like Jesus should have come and been black. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, because if Jesus had come and was black, then, these are her words, okay, I'm quoting, then the rich white people would have known that having slaves is wrong because the black people are real people too. Oh my goodness. I'm like, huh? Are you kidding me? She's not eight. 
I didn't know what to say. And here's what was amazing. I, I tell you, I mean, so, I mean, that's a picture of, of the scriptures making someone wise for salvation. She now knows enough to know about the need for racial reconciliation. And she knows sometimes that white people who are rich have mistreated black folks and that they were responsible for slavery, right? I mean, this, this is a, a huge, I mean, there's probably nine or 10 different pieces that she's put together and become wise unto salvation. So that was remarkable. Well, what was crazy was that while we're sitting at this table at the restaurant, there's a guy at the next table over and I could tell he was listening. And when she said that, he chimes in and says, oh, my goodness, that's incredible. Like, I can't believe she just said that. That was amazing. And then he actually threw in, you know, I'm not a Bible expert or anything, but my understanding is that there's some passages that even present Jesus as more as a, as a dark-skinned person. And anyways, what happened was it started this conversation. We began to talk with him. Um, and he, he's kind of, um, he, he believes a lot of different things, a very spiritual person. And we got the opportunity to invite him to church to have this long conversation about, I mean, even as a church, we got to talk about how for us as a church, we do a, as much of a job criticizing the world that we live in. We criticize the, uh, the church as much as we criticize the world because we realize that the church has to grow too, that the church, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with the church. You know, and and for him to hear that, that, you know, it sort of gives people hope that the people they're talking to aren't just crazy, you know, sort of drink the Kool-Aid kind of folks. And it was just this amazing thing where Amanda demonstrated that she's being made wise unto salvation. And because she spoke up in the way that she did, God opened up a door of opportunity to talk to somebody else about Jesus and about what makes how he makes such a huge difference in our lives. And so again, this is what the Bible does. As you read it, as you understand it, as you think about it, the Bible will make you wise. It will teach you what God thinks so you can think the way he does. It'll make you wise unto salvation. You'll see, um, you'll see yourself growing as you think about him. The Bible teaches us and makes us wise. It also says here in verse 16 that the Bible is profitable for reproof and correction. And so what that means is that the Bible, reproof means it, it expresses strong disapproval, okay? And correction means that it brings growth. That's what the Bible does. And, and I love this because the scriptures are best used in this way when you recognize it's not you that is uh, expressing strong disapproval to somebody else. It's the scriptures. What I mean there is that it's, it's God's word. It's not yours. It's not about what you think. It's about what God thinks. And in a sense, that enables you, instead of getting in someone's face and smashing them like, you know, head on, it enables you to step back, come alongside and say, you know what, I think I understand where you're coming from. Here's what God says to both of us. And here's how it's affected me in my life. Here are ways that this part of God's teaching has confronted me. And you make it safe for them. You know what I mean? Instead of just like making them defensive by confronting them head on. I mean, sometimes that's necessary. But usually it's better and more effective to come alongside somebody and say, you know what, let's look together at this and let me tell you how this has meant, what this has meant in my life. The Bible, though, is profitable for reproof and correction. Then verse 16 and 17 say, it says that it's also profitable for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That word training is important. Scriptures will train you in righteousness. And the thing you want to take away from that 
is that it's a process. I know all of us, if you're like me, you kind of just want to be zapped and made new, right? You want to just get fixed. Can I just be done with this? Can I just be new again, you know, all, all, all right now? And the way it works is that it trains you in righteousness. It takes effort. You know, it takes consistency. The more you apply yourself to it, the more you, in a sense, put yourself under the shower that God brings more and more righteousness. It's not that it doesn't change your righteous standing before God. That's earned by Jesus. But as you devote yourself to God's word, what the Bible does in your life, what the Constitution does, is it helps conform you practically into the image that you find in Scripture. And so, again, it works over time. So there are moments where you'll feel it. As you're reading, something will happen to you, and you'll feel like you've just changed because you've got a new truth or you experience something in a different way or you thought about a new way to apply it. But oftentimes, you just want to consistently, you know, go after the word, little by little, line upon line, and you'll look back on your life and you go, you know what, I feel like there's some differences that I see. I feel like I'm a little more patient than I used to be. I feel like I'm more understanding. That's how the training works. And the good news here is that the end result in verse 17 is that, that you may be equipped for every good work. That's exciting. You'd be able to do what God wants, able to be the person that God has, that, that you're longing to be, actually. And it's for every good work. I mean, let me say it this way. There is nothing that God wants you to do that his word will not enable you to do. Sometimes the training is longer, sometimes it's shorter, but there is no, there's nothing that God wants you to do that he won't enable you to do, and he will use his word. And if you feel like, well, you don't know my situation, or you don't know what I think I need to be doing, or if, if, if that's what you're feeling right now, then don't do it alone. It sounds like you might need some perspective from outside of you, a brother or a sister, if you need to talk to one of the elders or me, I mean, we can bring more and more of God's truth and talk about how it applies so that you can be trained in that good work. So if this is what the Bible does, you know, if it makes us wise, if it reproves and corrects us, if it trains us so that we're equipped, then what should sermons do? Really the same thing, right? Sermons ought to be a model of this. I mean, my hope is that when we open up Scripture, you read it, and then as we preach through it, you understand it, you actually experience the truth of it, and then you know how to apply it. I mean, that's what we're aiming for. What Paul says to Timothy is that preaching, when he says preach the word in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Three things, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is what preaching, this is what you should be looking for in preaching. Reprove means to expose those areas that need growth. It means to, to just kind of peel back the curtain to show you what's there that needs to grow. And I don't know, one illustration of this, if you think about a house, it'd be like termites. You know, termites get in and they eat away at the wood, right? And they, they weaken sometimes in major ways that can cause huge structural damage to a house. Now, you can live in a house that has termite damage, that has growing termite damage for quite a long time, and the question you want to ask yourself is, like, would you rather know or not? You know? I mean, if you don't have the money to fix the termite damage, then maybe it's better to live in ignorance. Um, and so there, there certainly is that. But, I mean, wouldn't you rather know the areas that need to be worked on? Because at least then you got what? 
you have a chance to work on it. You have a chance at least to say, God, this is in my life, and I haven't been aware of this before, but I'm sorry about this. You can begin that cleansing process because that's it's the confession process when you confess it to the Lord that he begins to work. He forgives and he cleanses, right? And so knowing about it's good. So that's what reproving is. So in a sermon, you're going to hear about stuff that you're doing or not doing that you should or shouldn't be doing. It's part of the process. And, you know, come on, that's good. I mean, isn't it? If you don't like that process, I mean, obviously it depends on how it's done. If you have somebody beating you over the head and making you feel awful, I guess that's one thing. But we all need truth coming into our lives from outside because we all have blind spots. We all, all of us, have areas of our lives that we don't even know what we're doing. And so part of the preaching, part of, and hopefully what the preaching does is it sets you up and makes you able to hear it from other people too. But part of what preaching does is, it's, is you should come in and go, okay, I know I'm going to be doing business with God and he's going to have things to say in my life. So you just come in and expect that. So reprove. Rebuke means to preach against sin. If reproving is exposing sin, rebuking is preaching against it. And so really the word means to express strong disapproval. It sounds like that kind of, you know, this sort of thing, right? Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Like, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, I think uh, what's interesting to me about God and his character is that the way that God expresses disapproval is that he does it in a way that actually invites us to be free. The purpose of God exposing our sin is so that we will leave it, okay? God is not trying to beat us up. God is not trying to make us feel ashamed or guilty. God exposes our sin, well, because of the third thing, the exhortation. The word exhort, what it means is call people near to Jesus, okay? The word exhort is parakaleo, and it's, it's to call, kaleo is call, para means near. Exhorting, I've heard the word exhort used as like a really strong in-your-face confrontation. I think that word is used in English sometimes that way. This word, when it's used in Scripture, it means to call people to one side, to call people to one side, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He exposes our sin, he stands against our sin, and then he invites us to draw near to him, to draw near to him, leaving our sins behind. I mean, that's how it works. And I think this is big because it fixes our own attitudes that we can have, especially in the church. Sometimes when we expose other people's sins and express our strong disapproval for them, we almost make it sound like, so go deal with this, and when you're fixed, maybe I'll talk to you again. That's not what Jesus does. That's not what Paul is telling Timothy to do. When you hear me expose your sin and preach against it, I am going to say, now look, God is inviting you right now. He is calling you to come alongside him, to draw near to him, and to let him set you free. And then I'll say even beyond that, that the image that Jesus gives me from this verse isn't just that he says, come near to me, but Jesus says, I'm going to come near to you. I'm not even going to wait for you to come near to me. I am going to seek you out. I am going to leave heaven and come and find you on earth. I'm going to see the sins that you're committing, and I'm going to take those sins and die for them. I'm going to take your sins. I'm going to draw near to you. Take your sins on my body, and I'm going to suffer the penalty for your sin. 
When you see that, when that is the image, when Jesus stands before you, it's the crucified one who is confronting you. It's the one who has already paid the price for your sins. He's the one who is exposing your sin and standing against it because he wants you to be drawn near to him. That's what preaching has to do for us. And that's the love. Greater love has no one than this, than he lays down his life for his friends. And that's the love that compels us. That's the love that makes us say, Jesus, man, I don't care. Anything you say, I'll do after what you've done for me. So, so that's what the Bible does. Our last point is why the Bible is needed. Why we need the Bible. This is kind of simple. Um, it's verses 3 to 5. Because there's coming a time when people aren't going to listen. That's what Paul says there. Having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's coming a time when people aren't going to want to hear it, and that's why we have to tell them today. We've got to tell people today. Um, folks who aren't Christians, the longer you stay not being a Christian, the longer you get used to living your life without God, without being open to his truth, without a relationship with him, the easier it is to live apart from God the rut gets deeper and deeper and deeper and it becomes harder and harder. You feel like you have to get more and more of the truth to convince you to think differently. You know, and we get hardened in our hearts. Our hearts get hard if we're not careful. And so you need to hear it today if you're not a Christian. That today is the day. We sang about it. Today is the day. God even says, if today you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. But not just non-Christians, Christians, we also get into ruts. All of us who are walking with Jesus have areas of our lives where we're not only doing things that we shouldn't do, but we cannot anymore hear people when they confront us. We have, we, we've become blind and deaf to our blind spots. Now, this happens a lot of times in long-term relationships. So in marriages, if you've been married for any period of time, there are things in your life that you may be doing that drives your spouse absolutely crazy, that, that really honestly, truly hurts your spouse, and you're not even listening when he or she brings it up to you because you're just you're blind to it. We can be guilty of hardening our own hearts and not listening to the truth. This is why when we come, when we come to the Word, we've got to be careful because you need to make sure that the person who's preaching is accurately interpreting the Scriptures. Right? The Bereans did that in Acts chapter 17, and they're, they're commended for it. At the same time, when we open up God's word, read it, and have it preached, you need to realize that you're sitting at the feet of Jesus, and you're listening to him. You're listening for his voice so that he can come into your life and speak. And you've got to take a position of humility. You've got to be humble enough to say, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm listening. You have a huge role in the sermon. When we, talk about the, when we talk to the kids um, about the five C's or the five stages of covenant renewal worship, you know, in that constitution phase, we have a question. We ask them, so why is the sermon so long? You know, we ask them that, and the kids say, here's, here's the answer, because God has a lot to say. God has a lot to say. Now, it's hard, I know, to listen for 40 minutes. It's hard to stay on track. It's hard to stay in tune. And, but that's, that's your that's your response. When God speaks, when the Constitution is open, it's your job, your act of worship is to listen attentively. 
is to listen attentively. It's to be disciples of his. You know, and so for some of you, it may mean taking notes because that helps you listen. For others of you, you know, maybe you just got to keep remembering, hey, I got to tune back in because I know it's easy to wander. I know it's easy to wander. So, but the reason we have to do that is because we all, the, the, the deceitfulness of sin gets into our lives and we get tempted to just ignore the stuff we're doing and pretty soon we can't hear anybody. That's both Christians and not. So what does that mean for sermons? Well, it means that, that in preaching, there's got to be a boldness that comes. Right? I've got to confront you about this dynamic that could happen in your life. And I'm going to have to tell you, okay, you all need to listen here. Okay, you need to listen and pay attention because what I'm about to say is important. Okay, there'll be times when I do that. Um, there's a boldness that's also called for in preaching because Paul says you do it in season and out of season in verse 2. That means when people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. Okay, and so there's a boldness there that's called for in terms of preaching. And all, not just for preaching, but for all of us. You know, there's times where the people that we know and love want to hear it and times when they don't. And so before you think I'm telling you to go out and beat people up, hold on a sec, because here's the balance. Paul says that you preach, the end of verse 2, with complete patience and teaching. Okay, so there's the balance. You got it? You got to be bold. In season and out of season, ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, expose sin, express disapproval, but then come alongside and call people to Jesus right on the one hand on the other hand complete patience and teaching do you know what patience is it means being willing to have the authority of jesus take a long time to take root in someone's life that means that it's not one and done hey i told them once they didn't want it i'm out you know i'm giving up complete patience and teaching means that you take your time that you understand who they are that you actually listen and how they're responding. So if there are other things, other bits and pieces, right, that they need to understand in order for them to get what you're saying, you can fill in those gaps. And then it means being willing to answer questions, right? Not taking every objection as a complete rejection of the truth. Patience and teaching. Okay, and so that's the balance. You've got to have both. So let me just stereotype all of you for a second. Some of you are really good at being bold and not so good at being gentle. You need to grow this way. Okay. Now, some of you though, you're super gentle and patient, but not bold at all. You need to grow this way. This is the balance that comes in sermons, but then also as you walk this out Monday through Saturday. It's a good word for us, boldness and patience. We've got to have this. And so that should characterize your sharing. And so really quickly, in addition to that, when you think about Monday through Saturday, you want to realize, just bottom line, take this away, you have a constitution. Okay, If you're a Christian, you have a constitution. This is your constitution. You need to read it. You need to read it. You need to know what it says. You need to train yourself in it. So this means you need to set aside time in your life to devote yourself to this book. Blessings pour out on those who do. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You have to fill your mind so that you can meditate on it day and night. Now, let me just say something too. That means setting aside time, devoted time to read it. Here's something that's interesting. You might not have thought about this before. If you're like me, there's times where you sit down to read the Bible 
and you feel like, man, I don't understand this, or I only read a few verses, and I really feel like I should read more. I didn't spend very much time doing it. And you sort of get discouraged so that you don't do it anymore. Because if you can't have like a one-hour block of time to read the Bible, you feel like it's just not good enough. Think about this for a second. Think about the image of someone who takes the time every day, even if it's five minutes, even if it's one minute, they open their Bible, they open up their constitution, and they say, God, this is my constitution. I want to understand it. I don't have a huge amount of time right now, but I want to read some of it. If you read five verses, one chapter, if you read a short amount and you think about it, and then you go on with the rest of your life, if you did that every day, then here's the picture that I see. I see a picture of someone who is committed, who is acknowledging that they have a constitution, that they have an authority that speaks to them, and they want to consistently devote themselves to it. Okay, don't be discouraged if all you do is read one verse and think about it. Don't be discouraged if you're reading just one chapter and that's all you do. I mean, I'd love for you to devote extended time. And I know, if life, I know life gets busy. This should be a priority. But if all you do is read a verse and say, what is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about me? What does this show me about Jesus? And how could this change the way I live today? If you do that, then you are making yourself a person of the Constitution. I mean, and that's a good thing. That is a God-honoring, wonderful thing. The best thing I could say about reading the Bible and what it does, what it is, and why we need to hear it is that, I mean, we've already kind of talked about this, is that it brings us ultimately to Jesus. Like he is the one that we see loud and clear on every page of scripture. And there's a song that shows me why I have to devote myself to the Bible. This is a, it's a song called, What Kind of Joy Is This? And this is how it goes. It says, anybody in their right mind would have given up the preaching and headed for home. They've been warned a hundred times, but something inside them keeps giving them hope. And just when you think they'd be crying, instead of the tears, there's joy in their eyes. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives a prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory. This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. You cannot come to this understanding of your life. You cannot have this kind of joy. You cannot have this sort of perspective in the brokenness of your life without being forgiven and free. This is the mind-transforming impact that the Bible has on your life. Jesus is the Word. The word, he's the word become flesh. And he will shape you into having that kind of joy. If you have it now, it'll grow your joy. If you don't have it, it will give you real joy. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want this kind of joy. This is that joy that comes from knowing we're forgiven, we're free, from knowing that you are the reward. When we live for you, when we live this gospel life, our experience of that joy grows and grows and grows and grows. Lord Jesus, would you lead us continually into your constitution, into this book, and help us to be people who are devoted to it, not just so that we can say we've read it, but so that we find you in it. Help us, Lord. Help every person. I know there's people here, some are Christians, some are not, 
who just desperately need to commit themselves to reading your word. Speak to them. Convince them of the power that you will let loose in their life, of the joy that you will pour in, the perspective, the happiness that comes when people learn to trust you and your authority. We pray this in your name. Amen.